I'm Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is season two of Intersectionality Matters, the podcast that brings intersectionality to life by exploring the hidden dimensions of today's most pressing issues, from Say Her Name and Me Too to the war on civil rights and the global rise of fascism. This idea travelogue lifts up the work of leading activists, artists, and scholars, and helps listeners understand politics, the law, social movements, and even their own lives in deeper, more nuanced ways. Facts about the black vagina. My thinking about the relationship between slavery and intersectionality came to a head about 15 years ago. I was asked by Eve Ensler to write a vagina fact for a special benefit performance of the vagina monologues at the Apollo Theater. Has the black vagina received the respect she deserves? The experience of performing this poem at the Apollo with so many actresses that I admired was otherworldly. I can't sing. I have no other artistic skills. So I never, ever, ever dreamed that I'd ever have the opportunity. Is the black vagina respected when we, and I mean we, men as well as women, readily embrace our men accused of rape and chastise women for not having the good sense God gave her. Here's a little bit more of the poem that speaks directly to the relationship between intersectionality and slavery. It wasn't the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, or the Stars and Stripes that gave birth to America. It was the black vagina that laid the golden egg, or rather, the shadow slave. That's right, during America's formative years, the most valuable property it produced, the property that the entire economy was based on, the property that was mortgaged to build America, was property in slaves. Twelve billion dollars worth. One can't begin to fathom it in today's dollars. And where did it come from? Whose vaginas passed this twelve billion dollars? whose vaginas were capitalized, colonized, and amortized, all to give birth to America? Whose vaginas have been appropriated, syndicated, deprecated, but never, ever vindicated in the process of building this country? The only vagina that was less valuable when it was protected, loved, and respected than when it was open, taken, and occupied at will. The story of the victors is usually the history that we learn in school. The story of resistors is often the story that we learn at home. The stories of the women who were resistors are stories that we often have to read and find on our own. And that's the situation when we think about how to imagine slavery, not just from the vantage point of those who were enslaved, but from the vantage point of those who actually produced the slaves, those whose sexual assault, whose institutionalized rape, um, whose denial of being able to be mothers made the slave system possible. So to disrupt 
the way in which slavery is now simply invisibly integrated into our history. We have to not just tell stories about slavery from the vantage point of um, slaves in an ungendered way. We have to actually dig a little deeper, talk about the things that are really uncomfortable, not just to society at large, but to those of us who are descendants of mothers who were raped and bred for this economic system to become what it became, for the United States to become what it is now. I'm so excited to start the new season with this episode, thinking through the 1619 Project, thinking through reparations, thinking through revisiting our history from an intersectional lens. We have to think about Black life, Black history, as one that is gendered in particular ways. So intersectionality is a way of reminding us that the story isn't complete unless we're talking about the way slavery impacted Black women and the way Black women were impacted by slavery. As one of the most internationally recognized scholars on the interplay of gender, race, and class issues in America, I couldn't think of a better person than Dorothy Roberts to speak about the Black feminist perspective on reproductive health, bioethics, and child welfare. I called on her to discuss the contemporary consequences and impact of slavery, segregation, and white supremacy on Black women. Dorothy, welcome to Intersectionality Matters. Thank you. It's so good to be here. And we don't get a chance to talk nearly as much as we'd like to. So when we get going, we can really get going. I think the listeners will see. So one of the reasons that I think there's so much excitement about 1619 is there is a sense that we would talk and think about racial inequality, anti-black racism, and what needs to be done with it very differently if history actually started with 1619. What does intersectionality bring to that project? So if we were to actually be robust in 1619, bringing black women's history into it, what are some of the things that would be front and center in this conversation? Well, one of the things that would be front and center is the way in which the regulation of black women's childbearing played such a central role in the justification for slavery, the way in which it operated, and its reverberations continuing to the present day. There is something that I, that I do think in, in what you're saying really requires us to pause and, and think a little bit more about what is missing from our historiography on slavery. And I guess I would put it like this. So I took race, racism in the law from a a famous jurist, and he was trying to get the class, largely, you know, Harvard students, to think about what the experience of slavery must have been like. Okay, so I was all ready to have this conversation. And he turns, as inevitably one must, to the experience of black women being bred. But the way he talked about it was this. Imagine what it must have been like uh, to stand, be forced to stand by 
and watch while your daughter, your <laughs> wife, your sister, your mother, your aunt, your grandmother was forcibly taken uh, in 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 order to you know reproduce the slave population. Imagine what that right, must have right, been like. Right. And I remember thinking, well, as bad as that was, it couldn't have been as bad as being the grandmother exactly, <laughs> wife who exactly. was forcibly taken. Yeah. So th- there was something in this moment that suggested that the gaze upon which the story of slavery's brutality is told from is still a masculine vantage point. Like, I was not able to protect. I was not able to avenge. Yeah, I think that is such an insightful story about what's missing because it doesn't address the violence to the bodies of Black women, but also the problem with the oppression of controlling someone else's body in order to achieve the interests of white elites. And you can see how leaving that out has harmed the very way we think about reproductive justice for everybody. It's not just that black women's enslavement and forced reproduction paints black women as the scapegoat for all sorts of social problems. That's bad enough. But it also laid the foundation for a whole future, including eugenics, of government policies aimed at controlling the reproduction of people, including forced sterilization. It just seems natural that the government should be able to regulate the childbearing of black women because black women are dangerous reproducers. And it's so powerful that you can have stereotypes and images like the black welfare queen who was supposed to have children just to get a welfare check, which is ludicrous. Mm -hmm. You know, no one would do that because the welfare check isn't enough to support children. Mm -hmm. But that ludicrous myth that was completely rooted in these notions of black female depravity uh, and dangerous childbearing was powerful enough to fuel a movement to end welfare. Mm-hmm. And successfully. And, it was su- it successfully and, and did on it. top of that, because you know, we're now in a moment where, you know, there were two projects in, in the eighties and nineties that reflects the um, you know, moment of neoliberal concession. And black people were at the forefront of both of those. One is mass incarceration. Uh, which foregrounded black men, and the other was welfare reform, which foregrounded black women. Now, we do have a discourse now about how that effort to um, position black men as the social problem that we need to be able to rank, ramp up, you know, carceral strategies to um, to address. We, we, we have a critical discourse about that now. Not so much about the headlining role that black women played in animating basically the shredding of the social safety net. Why why is that? Well, I think part of it is because of the way in which this form of oppression is naturalized so people don't even see it as a form of oppression. So prisons, whether you believe they're good or not, you know, whether you think they solve social problems or not, most people understand them to be punitive. Mm-hmm. 
they, they understand there to be, now they may see that they are punitive for oppressive reasons, or they may think that they're punitive for justifiable reasons, but, but at least they see, right. they get that it's punitive mm-hmm. and it's bad to have to go to prison. Mm-hmm. With respect to welfare, because it's been naturalized that black women have children in order to rip off taxpayers, that black women's reproduction is dangerous, that black women's wombs produce poverty, it seems to many people that instead it's helpful. You know, it's it's a good thing to have mm-hmm. policies mm-hmm. that regulate this form, right. right? That control them because black women's reproduction is out of control, mm-hmm. and so you need to control it. And there's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. That's good. In fact, welfare has been welfare reform has been portrayed as something that helps black women and, and other impoverished women get out of poverty mm-hmm. to to be able to rehabilitate their lives and so, by, by shall we say the party that black women help oh, maintain absolutely. you know their hold on power right so that's this right. is just you know on the other side of the aisle that's absolutely right so clinton was the one who signed the bill destroying welfare, eliminating the federal entitlement to welfare and opening up the floodgates to all sorts of state regulation that I call behavior modification projects. They're not designed to support anybody's family. They're designed to modify the supposedly depraved behavior of what now is seen as black mothers who are having too many children, not working hard enough. And I would just bring into this what an intersectional approach also points out is that the massive skyrocketing of the prison population, which, by the way, also includes disproportionate numbers of black women, was linked to welfare reform. That whole trend of attaching welfare to prisons began really more in the 1960s, continued to develop, and we can see the expansion of the prison system throughout those decades, and then the abolition of welfare as prisons more and more become to be seen as a solution to social problems and to meeting human needs. I think both prisons and the abolition of welfare are supported by notions of black women's depraved childbearing and the and the children they produce as being potential or inevitable criminals and welfare dependents. And then I would just add to it the foster care system. Yes. Because right. the another punitive way in which black mothers have been treated is by the disproportionate removal of their children. So when you ask why is it that black children are so much more likely to be removed from their homes, half of black children are subject to some child welfare investigation. Half, of half. Black yes, yes. Now they may not be wow. remo- all be removed, but they're investigated at some point. That's a level of surveillance, right? Yes. That, that matches the surveillance of, you know, police of, of black men or police right. and, 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 you know, uh, people driving while black. Right. But that doesn't quite reach the same level of consciousness in anti-racist discourse as other surveillance strategies Not do. at all. It pales in comparison. And let, let me set this up. When you were writing 
writing about this. Um, and there was a famous article that, that you wrote um, that called out the, this, this conception that basically black children are just there for the taking. Um, and any, any laws that got in the way of the free alienability of these black children yes, yes. were actually disadvantaging those black yeah, children, right? right? Mm-hmm. So talk about your debate, shall yes. we say, um, with a, a, a law professor right. who actually made an argument that uh, your position was actually harming black children. Yes, yes. So I'm not sure exactly which Harvard law professor you're talking about. Elizabeth because Bartholet. I, okay, because I've been criticized <laughs> by yeah, at I least a couple of them. Yeah, yeah, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, um, yeah, so I, I've written articles. I also wrote a book called Shattered Bonds, The Color of Child Welfare, where I point out that this high rate of removal of black children is actually a form of gender and race intersecting oppression of black people at targeted at black mothers in particular and based on these stigmatizing stereotypes about black mothering, including the idea that black mothers do not have a loving bond with their children. And as you pointed out, that idea stems from slavery. So if you're going to have an institutionalized pattern of uh, breeding black women and then um, alienating them from their children, you have to develop a story, a narrative that says, you know what, it's not so bad. They're not that attached to it. In fact, it's better for them to be removed. So taking black children and selling them isn't done anymore. But first of all, taking them is still done. And the ideology that makes that taking appear to be reasonable, rational, in the best interests of the children and society is directly uh, uh, connected to a continuation of an ideology that was, you know, grounded in slavery. Exactly. So what's important to keep your eye on is that ideology. So in the same way that black women aren't being forced to have children like they were during the time of slavery, Instead, they're more likely to be coerced not to have children or even forcibly sterilized. What connects that is the belief that black women's childbearing must be controlled and that black women should not have control over their own childbearing and and bodies. So the debate that I had with this Harvard professor is the view that, well, taking black children from their mothers is actually helpful to them. Uh, So Professor Bartholet argued in a book called Nobody's Children and also in Direct Arguments with Me. Nobody's Nobody's Children. Children. Talk about erasure, right? They just spring free form, (laughs) drop Exactly, exactly. So they're supposed to be nobody's children in the sense that their mothers do not really care for them. Or their mothers are nobody. That's true, too. That's another way of looking at it. They're nobody. They don't matter. Uh, And these children are in need of white homes, 
You know, they belong. In fact, I was at a conference where somebody yelled out, they belong to us. A white woman yelled out, they belong to us, oh, these wow. children. So the, it's this very perverse way of thinking that black children don't have connections. And commodities. They're they commodities. Can be they can be commodified. Which, again, goes back go. to slavery, right? So all of these ideas we can trace back. And the language is so infuriating and provocative. So you mentioned the word free. These people who supported the Adoption Safe Families Act literally argued that we needed to free black children from their mothers in order to allow them to be adopted. And this Adoption Safe Families Act is an incentive for the speedier termination of parental rights. So how does it work as an incentive? It works as an incentive by telling states that under federal law, they have to speed up termination of parental rights. And so one way was to change the law to put time limits on states for the time they needed to petition to terminate the rights of parents whose children were in foster care. That was like the stick, right? The carrot was to provide financial incentives by giving states money if they increase the number of children adopted in the state. Wow, so that's like a market. It really is. It really is. It's not to mention that also then the adoptive parents get more money than you would get for your raising your own children as someone relying on temporary assistance to needy families. In my book, Shattered Bonds, I uh, spend a lot of time with a mother whose child was taken from her be- on grounds of medical neglect. Now, that should be corrected if that was truly a problem. We know also that doctors are much more likely to report black mothers for harms to their children than white mothers. A broken leg, for example, is much more likely to be reported as child abuse. I I should add, though, that most children in foster care are there because of neglect that's usually connected to poverty, not because of physical or sexual abuse. But this mother, uh, instead of being given help in giving her child the right medical treatment according to the doctors you know she had no interest in harming her child right. she wanted to give her child the appropriate medical treatment they put the child in foster care and this and gave be- someone else the resources to provide <laughs> well the that's medical the thing care. so exactly the then the children are much more likely to get those resources in fact many parents have to so-called voluntarily give up their custody of their children to the state in order to get the medical care that their children need. And may not know once they've done that that they might be fast-tracked into parental termination. Well, this is the problem that once children are placed in foster care, there are lots of incentives to keep them there. There are financial incentives to the agencies that get money from the federal government for every day the child is in foster care. Uh, There's also the incentive on judges to keep children there because they're afraid, they're more afraid of a story that they made the wrong decision not to keep the child in foster care than the opposite. You don't hear about the thousands and thousands of children who are traumatized by being taken from their homes and being put in foster care. They may move to multiple 
uh, homes. And they're also, this is another connection to the criminal punishment system, they're also much more vulnerable to being put in juvenile detention themselves because they don't have parents to, to help them, you know, to represent them. And often the response of foster care agencies, if a child isn't complying in the way they want, is to call the police on them. When children run away from foster care, uh, they're now seen as criminals themselves. And the typical response is to call the police to find them. And many times these children end up in juvenile detention because they were escaping a situation that was traumatizing to them. So the child is actually in in the system that itself is a system of surveillance Absolutely. and punishment. Absolutely. Having been put there because their parents are disproportionately. It's, it's just like yes. the criminal uh, justice it's, thing. It's, it's, en- enhanced exposure ab- leads to enhanced risk of Absolutely. family dissolution which in turn puts the children in enhanced risk of actually being caught up in the juvenile justice Exactly. And then on the other side, looking at what happens with black mothers, uh, it's very common in some states and cities that when a mother calls the police or child welfare agencies because they themselves have been victimized by uh, violence in the home, their children are taken away from them. And so comparing the experience of many black women that when they call the police to protect them, they themselves get violently beaten or tased or as we've seen, even shot by police. Yes, yes. There's also the, the, the parallel experience with the child welfare system that their children get taken from them because they've called for protection against violence against themselves. Mm-hmm. Here again, we've got these myths that you know, any mother who would allow herself to be beaten must be a bad mother, and therefore the children must be removed. Because this happens even in cases where the children were not abused by the, so the her abuser. abuse is a justification for her to lose her children. Absolutely, And the yes. common denominator, again, is the initial assumption that's sort of now hardwired into the culture that these are not safe and secure homes in the first place. That yes. just be, you know, being a product of a black womb is a risk factor. That's, that's absolutely true. That is a very good way of putting it. Just being, the, the womb itself is risky, mm-hmm. And being a product of it is a risk factor because of the mother, not because of racism. This is, I talk about ideologies. There is a very common ideology in science in general in the United States that race and gender and the combination are risk factors. No, it's racism and patriarchy that are the risk factors that black women disproportionately experience. It's not that we are the risk factors. No, that's not the problem. And that and but, that subtle slippage. Yes. You know, explains virtually everything. <laughs> you know, yeah. How black women become the source yeah. of social pathology. Right. You know, Absolutely. And, and we see that um, in in social policy and, and even in the things that were celebrated. So we've been talking about the failure to talk about gender within race. 
but there's also a way in which there's an absenteeism of race and racism within the way we tell stories uh, about feminism. So in particular, you know, the story of the history of birth control and, and Margaret Sanger, um, there are huge gaps there. Yes. What yes. are they and why do they, why, why are they perpetuated? Yes. How are they perpetuated? Right, right. Well, you have to ask yourself, how could it be that birth control, which is supposed to be a form of freedom for people, and Margaret Sanger promoted birth control initially as a way of freeing women from perpetual childbearing. So it was a feminist project, but she also joined forces with eugenicists in a number of ways in terms of rhetoric uh, and supporting the eugenics movement in, in various ways. Uh, to allow for, uh, it might be too strong to say that this became her campaign. It didn't. She still was campaigning for birth control as a form of freedom for women, but she also allowed in for strategic reasons, I think, and because she didn't see it as uh, prohibitively racist to do this, she argued for birth control as well as a form of eugenics, of improving society by limiting the births of people deemed socially uh, not valuable. And so uh, it's, it's complicated. Uh, I don't think we should see her either as promoting birth control solely for the purpose of controlling black people, for example, which has been uh, manipulated by anti-abortion campaigners today to try to discredit Planned Parenthood. Right. But on the other hand, it's wrong to see her as this champion of feminism without taking account of the eugenics discourse that she engaged in. And I think that's important not just to examine Margaret Sanger in particular, but to ask about how it was that a movement for birth control that could have been a movement of freedom for everybody, right, turned into a way of controlling certain populations. How was it that birth control became sabotaged by racists and white supremacists and misogynists to control people instead of a means to give them freedom for their own reproductive lives. And so if we move forward into the 1960s and 1970s, we see even after eugenics supposedly ended, we see government policies that supported the massive sterilization of women who relied on welfare. And this is disproportionately Against black women. Against their will, many times I, oh, not even knowing. That's that this absolutely is. right. That's where the term Mississippi appendectomy comes up, which is uh, when a woman, black woman, goes to the doctor, thinks she's got her appendix taken out, and actually she's gotten her uterus removed. And my understanding is this happened to Fannie Lou Hamer. Yes, absolutely, it did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Fannie Lou Hamer and, was and, one and, of and, and although this was so ubiquitous that there was a name for right. it, and although it happened to some of the leading uh, women of the civil rights movement, yeah. where does sterilization abuse turn up in the way we imagine or list some of the most common abuses or expressions right. of white supremacy? Right. It, it doesn't turn up enough. And, it do, and if it turns up, 
it turns up often in a very patriarchal way that, you know, black women should be producing babies for our movement, mm -hmm. you know. And Still not about our freedom and <laughs> liberty. Exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. And, and it, why is it? Why, I mean, it's such a, I mean, if we were to look at sort of the, you know, the, the, the list of dynamics, things that happen that are, you know, textbook, what does anti-black racism look like? Um, we know lynching is one of them. We, we know, um, you know, incarceration and, and police control. You know, those are all things that just spring immediately to mind. But the things that happened and happened to black women are at best afterthoughts if they are thought at all. There, there is a way in which, you know, one could say the entire civil rights movement was somewhat, you know, truncated and um, undermined by this idea that we can have all the structural institutional reforms uh, you can imagine, but until this black woman head family source of miscreants is handled, um, black inequality is going to be reproduced. Now, talk a little bit about when that ideology, you know, really came online and the surprising ways in which it still shows up 50, 60 years later. <laughs> right, that's right, that's right. So we can look, one shining example of this is Daniel Patrick Moynihan's report on the Negro family, which comes up at this, the, you know, the, in, during the civil rights movement. It come, It's part of the war on poverty. As I was saying earlier, the war on poverty is met at the same time with law enforcement approaches. And what links that together is this idea that black women are destroying the black family and that's really where the problem is. And so you cannot just give resources to black people because it's they're going to be channeled through the family and black women are just going to waste them and in fact use them in depraved ways. So again you see how these ideas about black women's reproduction are critical foundational. to the foundational to these key policies having to do with how to address racism in America. Unfortunately that's all behind us, right? No, it's not all behind us. <laughs> you know it's I'm not behind. all behind us. I know, Kim, I know. It's not all behind us because we can see these same policies, these same ideas behind yeah, same the policies idea. rolling out in so many different ways. So one, and you know, you are the key expert on this, is Obama's policies, my brother's keeper. You know, that the answer to supporting black communities is by directing resources toward black men and boys, uh, ignoring the fact that black women and girls are also uh, subject to these repressive, violent policies because of, again, this intersection of racist and sexist stereotypes that make black girls fall outside the norm, just in, innately, inherently. You know, and, and what, what so um, surprises me about the continuity of this idea that black communities will remain 
uh, underdeveloped and unequal because of this, you know, gender pathology, this gender disrepair, um, is that we live in a time in which all of the traditional ideas about what is a family and what is a, a father and a mother and, 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 and role disruption um, is sort of a dominant progressive policy. Yeah, so when yeah. it comes to everyone else, right. we've moved away from Ozzie and Harriet, the right, ideas, right. men's men and father, and our families are in, you know, we've, we've rejected that when it comes to it's seemingly everyone else. But when it comes to black people, yeah. there's still this sense that there's something wrong with us, right. largely because our women don't get it right and our men don't stick around Right. And that's the problem that needs to be fixed. Yeah. So yes. do you see that as a continuing dimension of the history of slavery as it shapes frames who black women are thought to be? I think so, because what? why is it that this is so persistent over the centuries when we see more progressive advances and uh, disruptions in other contexts. And a lot of it has to do with this idea that there's something innate in black women. Again, going back to this is a natural uh, reproduction of inequality that policy can only address through discipline mm -hmm. uh, because we can't be trusted to have control over our own bodies. We can't be trusted to lead families. We can't be trusted to take care of our children. We can't be trusted to take care of the you know, taxpayer money. And it seems so obvious that black women are treated differently as innate, innately defective, innately depraved, as opposed to other people in our society. So one example is the way in which black women who had substance abuse problems mm -hmm. during the so-called crack epidemic mm -hmm. were treated mm -hmm. with prosecution, with punishment, with the most dehumanizing treatment, women being dragged out of maternity wards after they gave birth to children, pregnant women being locked up in county jails, you know, just really violent approach to this public health problem. And the response of many experts and prosecutors written up in the media was that black women had some kind of natural depravity that forced them to use drugs, but also that then deprived them of any maternal instinct. And so they couldn't possibly take care of their children. So it was the way to treat them was through punishment. If we contrast that to today, the opioid epidemic, no one is saying that white women or white people in general are just depraved. Are depraved that they have some kind of innate disposition to use drugs, that they uh, have some kind of biological propensity toward death and disease. Or you know, they're but, creating a super predator class of children. Of children. No, it's a very different response. There are lots of different kinds of responses, but none of them is about anything inherently wrong with white reproduction. It's a completely different response than we saw with crack cocaine and black women. Mm -hmm. And so it, 
that contrast is so obvious, and yet people continue to make these statements about inherent depravity of black women. And even if they don't say it explicitly, mm-hmm. policies that are based on that, which by the way, then create laws that put all people at risk of prosecution for conduct during pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But with black women as the target and the myths about us as a way to push forward these extremely punitive policies. So, you know, we, we, we've talked about how the, the sort of naturalization of black women's wombs as the source of depravity um uh and 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 the product being freely alienable is a core dimension of slavery um of 1619 that has been you know continuous in various ways and particularly the ideology of it so it leads me to to wonder you know we're also having a new conversation or a renewed conversation about reparations what would the conversation about reparations look like, sound like, what would it address differently if this story, this, this continuity of the contemporary consequences of racism were more centered to how we understand it, if it was more fully intersectional? What would be on the table that's not on the table right now? Well, one obvious thing that would be on the table would be reparations for sterilization mm-hmm. uh, and other forms of reproductive violence that black women have experienced from the time of slavery to the present day. It would be a more capacious, broader thinking about what reparations would mean because now it is focused largely on wealth. Uh, which is important. I'm yeah, not right. criticizing that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, theft of black people's wealth, both the wealth created by enslaved labor and the wealth that was stolen from black people after emancipation and continues to be through various yeah. forms. But there's also a theft of black people's freedom. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so taking that into account, I think, really helps us to see more broadly the way in which current institutions like prison and foster care and welfare all are continuations of the theft of black people's wealth and freedom Mm -hmm. uh, that are broader than the ways in which we ordinarily would think about taking property that a black person owns or not allowing them to own property. And when it, one of the core dimensions of your work is that you go beyond mapping uh, the disempowerment to reconceptualize you know, what freedom has to look like. Right. So, so there's one move to say, this is not just about compensation, it's about uh, seeing the constraints that are uh, still grounded in that past and articulating an affirmative vision of what has to be brought into existence right now, right? So it's, a, it's a, not a negative freedom, it's a positive freedom. And, 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 and there is the question then, once you restate it and reimagine it that way, 
Um, the sources of uh, repair might not simply be, you know, the people who hold the advantages now. Right. It right. could be the people who haven't shown up for us. Right. It could be the people who talk about the history of racism who look like us but don't talk about right. us. Or right. the people who talk about the history, you know, of patriarchy yes. who are also women but don't talk about right. how we've experienced right. it. Right. A- absolutely. So I, I have two thoughts about this. One is it in order to have reparations, a true reparations that involves changing society you have to be able to envision a different society. And in order to get there, we have to make a lot of changes. It's not just abolishing prisons. We have to have an alternative to prisons, which means that we have to have a way to deal with domestic violence within the black community. So uh, we can't dismantle the oppressive structures unless we have a different type of society to replace it with. And what we want is not just the absence of the oppressive structures we see now, it has to be a new society that doesn't include those forms of oppression, which include forms of oppression of black women that are not just inflicted by white men. So it's got to include that in order to achieve this new society we're we're advocating. The other thing I want to point out is that without the perspective of black women and taking our lives and experiences into account, it is possible to look at reparations from a patriarchal uh, point of view. Mm-hmm. And uh, an example I'll give, with I, which I think draws together a lot of what we've been saying, is a campaign against abortion mm-hmm. services mm-hmm. that went on in cities around the country mm-hmm. that involved posters yes. of uh, a black woman. Uh, a, a, a well, black woman. Well, the the one that is to me the most significant was a black girl, who, with the caption, "The most dangerous place for an African American is in the womb." Yes. All right. So that was supposed to play on the past sterilization abuse of black women. Just really distorting the history I discussed about Margaret Sanger and eugenics and its intersection with birth control. Mm-hmm. The backdrop to this is the the message that they were trying to send is black women are responsible for genocide in their own communities because they seek abortion services. So without an intersectional approach that actually listens to black women mm-hmm. and takes our own interests and our own self-determination right into account. And liberty. And li- our own freedom yes. and liberty into right. account. You can see reparations for eugenics as something that's very anti-black women. Yeah. And yeah. In fact, you could distort yeah. it in that way. Clarence Thomas did this also in a recent concurrence. He supported laws that ban abortions based on race or gender. Mm -hmm. And this is just Mm. a a ploy Mm. to try Mm. to restrict abortion Mm -hmm. services, but an access to abortion. But he said he was 
supporting these bans because of the history of black women being forced into abortion for eugenicist purposes. So your oppression so, gets turned, <laughs> twisted to justify your continuing oppression. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Right. Right. So we've got to have an intersectional approach to the way we address history in America or else it can be a way of continuing oppression of black women instead of advocating and promoting and working toward the freedom for all of us. Dorothy Roberts, you are such an inspiration. Oh, thank you. You <laughs> are too. Yeah, what can I say? Millions of, of people thank who you. follow your work and and are empowered um, by the clarity that you bring to thank the demands you. that this history be brought forward. So this is I, I I said from the beginning that once we get going, we get going and we could continue. We will have to have part two of this. Thank you for this great um, shot in the arm and this wonderful conversation, you're Dorothy. Welcome. Rogers. Thanks, Kim. My pleasure. Keep listening and support us on our Patreon page for bonus content from all of our interviews. You can find us at Intersectionality Matters on social media at aapf.org and everywhere podcasts are available. Intersectionality Matters is produced and edited by Julia Sharp Levine. This episode was recorded by Emmett O'Malley and Julia Sharp Levine. Additional support was provided by Andrew Sun, Michael Kramer, and Jira Asim. Special thanks to my guest, Dorothy Roberts. I'm your host, Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters. Louis Scarcella was the greatest homicide detective of his generation. I am the protector of these people. I am the guardian that they need. Derek Hamilton was the best jailhouse lawyer of his. And the law was my girlfriend. It was all I had. What happens when a group of convicted felons take on the cop who put them away? We got to attack Scarcella. Come and get me. Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.